This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. invite you to take your Bibles and we want to go to Isaiah chapter 6. If a pastor would share what his greatest burden is for the church, uh, those that God has called him to be an under-shepherd to, don't answer out loud, but what do you think his greatest burden would be? Pastors do shoulder some burdens. But the greatest burden that I have is that God's people, and myself included, have a deeper walk with the Lord. That's the burden. You and I know people who call themselves Christians, and you don't see much of Christ in their lives. Others who are genuine Christians, and... They know the Lord, they do things for the Lord, but when it comes to just a walk that is relational, just even by the things that they say, you wonder how much time do they spend with the Lord. My burden, and I think I can speak for Pastor Coles uh, when I say this, certainly Pastor Matt Brown, who's here tonight. When you minister to people, you just want them to have a deep, rich, personal walk with God. It is not encouraging when pastors feel a dependence by God's people on them. My burden is that you learn to depend on the Lord. Now, obviously, we need each other, and when you reach out because you want encouragement, that's a blessing. That's a calling, and, and, and I'm privileged to be able to do that here. But we all should be growing in our dependence on the Lord, and our walk with the Lord should be real. It should be genuine. And part of the burden uh, for that is there's not always going to be a time when you can depend on someone else. There are going to be times when you are in places where there's nobody to call. Or when you're facing circumstances and you you really can't share that with anybody. Where all you have is the Lord. But all you need is the Lord. But you're not going to understand that, and I won't understand that, unless I spend time with the Lord and He's grown my relationship to that point. When we get to heaven and we start having conversations with the Bible characters, those whose lives we've studied, their writings we've read, their, their life experiences we've wondered about, I think there were a lot of lonely prophets, but I think probably Isaiah was at the top of the lonely list. Uh, 
ministering at a time when he had to feel very alone. Now, not always. He had a long ministry, and certainly in the days when he got to minister with a godly king like Hezekiah, those, those had to be some good days. Even Uzziah had a good run. But towards the end of Isaiah's ministry, uh, he had to feel very alone, like the Apostle Paul often felt very alone. But something happened early in Isaiah's ministry that prepared him for all that we've been talking about. Uh, the challenges of ministering to a nation that wasn't going to listen. The challenges that later of being alone and even probably facing martyrdom. One of the most familiar passages in Isaiah's prophecy is what happens in his life in chapter 6. And we're going to look at that tonight in a message that I've entitled Isaiah's Recommissioning. His Recommissioning. We're going to take a close look at that. We've learned from the book of Isaiah that God's plan for Israel is to move her from a condition of rebellion and blindness. That really has been most of Israel's history. From that condition to where she will trust completely in her Lord, her Messiah, and declare His salvation to the world. And most of that is yet to happen in the future. Once again, the nation will be brought close to annihilation at the end of the tribulation. She'll turn to the Lord. The nation, what's left of her, will be saved. And when we go into the millennium, again, Isaiah prophesies that it will be Israel who will be the missionary-sending nation. Our study now brings us to one of the most familiar passages in Isaiah where God cleanses his prophet, Isaiah 6, 1 to 7, and then recommissions him, verses 8 to 13. So why do we use the word recommission when we know that Isaiah has already been called of the Lord? He's already called to be a prophet. So why use the word recommission? Commission. Well, as we look at this, let's go back to the timing of his call. By way of introduction, the timing of his call. Hold your place in chapter 6 and let, just look at Isaiah 1 1 again. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, the timing of his call. He was serving during the reign of Uzziah, but he had been serving before that. When Uzziah died in 740 B.C., the call comes again. I use the word recommissioning because this was a time of rededication in Isaiah's life. It's important from time to time as we think about what happened with Isaiah, this will be the application as we look at it tonight, it's important from time to time that you and I revisit God's call on our life. So the question is, why do you do what you do? A lot of believers would say, that's what God's called me to do. All right, good, good. You ought to be doing what you know God has called you to do. But it's good to revisit that call from time to time and then to say this to the Lord, as Isaiah did, 
Here am I, Lord. Send me. Where do you want me to go? So the timing of the call. He's already called, but now he comes to one of these moments in his life that we're going to look at. And then the placement of this call on Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 5 contain the prophecy against Israel's sin, God's declaration of his future plan for Israel. But then we get to chapter 6, and God, in a sense, recalls. It's not it's not a different call, but, but he reiterates, he reaffirms his call on Isaiah's life. So God is going to bring Israel to a place where she is repentant, where she can witness for the Lord. And in Isaiah's ministry, you're going to have those high points, you're going to have those low points. And it's Americans... It kind of happens at political change time, if you know what I mean. It can be good and not so good. But our calling by God doesn't change, but what needs to change is what God continues to do in our lives as we revisit that call and we revisit the condition of our hearts to be able to go forward in that call. I wish when I got saved, there was a sanctification switch and all I had to do is, you know, kind of like the Christian cruise control. Doesn't work that way. And so Isaiah's life and his testimony is a reminder to us, all right, this is the way we should approach our relationship with the Lord and our service to God. The person that the Lord chooses must be willing to answer his call, but then he or she must have a heart that cries out, here am I, where do you want to send me? And on a regular basis, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am a woman of unclean lips. Lord, I struggle with this flesh. I fail. Lord, temptation is real, and I need you to have all of me so that I can fulfill this call. Not just get it done, but that I can do it in a way that pleases you and is effective for you. And God takes a Christian with that kind of a heart attitude, and he empowers them and continues to direct them for fruitful service. So let's consider Isaiah's recommissioning tonight. Isaiah's recommissioning began with the cleansing of God's man. Now consider what Isaiah's ministry may have looked like if chapter 6 hadn't happened. What do you think? What do you think Isaiah's ministry would have looked like if chapter 6 hadn't happened? We don't know. But here's what's a concern. It may have looked fine, but it may not have been all that God wanted it to be. Let me, let me ask you a painful question tonight. How much do you think would change in a lot of Christians' lives if the Holy Spirit just removed His power from their life? 
Do you realize that there are a lot of Christians who are not depending on the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and therefore, the question I just asked, nothing would really change. There's a whole lot, in fact, happening in the church today where, you know what, you, you can just, you can thank good promotion, all the other things that they do to attract a crowd, but is it really because God's got a hold of the heart and he's working through the individual to do his will? So Isaiah's testimony is a real challenge to me because here's a humble, honest man that understands in me that is in my flesh there dwells no good thing. And I have to have God have complete control of me as I walk with him. And I'm going to talk in perfection, be careful. But as I walk with the Lord so that in fact I am clean, not I want everybody to think I'm clean, but but God knows I am, and I'm a vessel that is totally yielded to him so that he can do a mighty work through me. And so we begin tonight in our outline with the cleansing of God's man. Let's look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 4 things shook, there was smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then, you may want to underline that word then. Then was not going to happen unless the previous verses had happened. Then, based on Isaiah's expression of what was happening in his heart, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. All right. The cleansing of God's man. Now, let's just pause for a moment. At this point, is Isaiah a believer? What do you think? Sure he is. Sure he is. Okay? But God's making this believer fit for the master's use. Now, what took place in verses 6 and 7 only happened because Isaiah first saw the Lord. It would never have happened if Isaiah had compared himself with others or if he had simply tried to evaluate his own heart. Think about that. There are a lot of Christians that think, I'm okay because as I look around, I'm a lot more dedicated than some of the others I see at church. Here's the problem. They're not... Paul said, you follow me as I what? Follow Christ. Okay? So others are not the standard. 
And by the way, just discover yourself. Just really take time to evaluate your own heart. Well, that, that may sound good, but that's not so helpful either. Because the scripture tells me, in fact, another prophet, Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then what's the question? Who can know it? You can look all day in here, but unless you take the mirror and the light of God's word and shine it on your heart, that's not going to get you anywhere. So self-evaluation, apart from the lens of Scripture and looking to the Lord, that's not so helpful either. Isaiah wasn't looking within and he wasn't just looking around. Here's what made the difference. Isaiah saw God. How do you and I see God today? I'm going to wait for a king to die and then I'm going to visit a temple. No. Here's where you see God. But you and I have to take a good, long, hard look at how he reveals himself. And I'll just say this, passages like Isaiah 6, great place to start. The window opens and God lets you look right into heaven. All right. So how did Isaiah see the Lord? Well, God, who is a spirit, we know that from John 4, at times presented a testament. Now, why did God do that? Because they, don't have, they did not have what we have to be able to see God. So he presented himself. How he presents himself to Isaiah is how he wants each of us to view him. How is that? Well, he is enthroned and exalted with indescribable majesty. Along with Isaiah chapter 6, you can probably think of other passages where God lets us see him. Going back to Mount Sinai, uh, the Lord's transfiguration. Probably the greatest help for us is just go look at the views of God in the book of Revelation and what happens in front of the throne. And take a look at God. Take a good hard look at who he is. It's noteworthy that Isaiah specifically mentions the train of the Lord's robe. This is the lowest part of a kingly garment. And yet it was that part, Isaiah didn't, or didn't see all of the Lord, but he saw this, this less significant, the lowest part of the Lord's garment, and yet that filled the temple. Making that magnificent structure that Solomon had built almost like a simple closet. Compared to the whole garment, but, but that simple part, it filled the temple. Not only that, not only did he see the Lord enthroned, but he saw the Lord worshipped. This, this is amazing. Above it, the temple stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. And really, what Isaiah is seeing is he's looking now into the throne of God. 
With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And cry. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You can read the rest of that description. It sounds very similar to what we see in the book of Revelation, the throne of God. And we took time when we went through the book of Revelation to, to just talk about that sea of glass. Gold that is so pure, it's glass. And fire and smoke and, and the brilliance of, of God's glory there. But then angels who hover, creatures who hover and declare the holiness of God. Isaiah got to see that. The word seraphim literally means burning ones. That's the Hebrew word. Think of these beings, six wings, either a flame or because of the radiant glory, they appear to be on fire as they reflect the glory of God. The seraph covers its face, its feet, and it flies continually. That's, that's the tense there. As it does, it proclaims in reverent tones the chief attribute of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. reverent awe. Now, I love all of our hymns and I love the anthems, but would you agree with me that when we sing holy, 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 it just affects the whole mood of things? Why? Well, that's what they're singing in heaven. And by the way, I, that's why I really struggle with some contemporary music that it's not holy, holy, it's Jesus is my buddy. Give me a break. He's God. And our music ought to reflect His holy character. Now why is God's holiness emphasized over all His other attributes? Well, Isaiah touches on it. I am a man of unclean lips. The word holy actually means separation, set apart. But one of the ways that God is set apart from us is that he is sinless and we are not. He's sinless. His holiness also governs all, his, governs all of his other attributes. He's the ultimate being in the universe. He's in a category all by himself. And when we take time to see God in that light... That light then sheds its light on who we are. Now, who we are, what we are, all of that is managed and cared for in light of who God is. I can't transform myself. But in light of who God is and what he has done for man, I can change, and we're about to see that because that seraphim is going to go to the altar, take a coal, and he is going to apply that to Isaiah's lips. And we're going we're to see that in, in a moment. So Isaiah not only hears what the seraphims are saying, but he feels it. Again, verse 4, there's smoke, the, the, the posts are shaking, the ground is shaking. 
The result is that God's prophet was overcome with the majesty and presence of God. And so let me pause for just a moment and remind us of this. To know God, he's very clear on this. Be still and know that I am God. Do you know the greatest danger in your life and mine is this thing called busyness? We need to get alone with God. And I will tell you, your flesh, if you're driven at all and you've got a to-do list, your flesh is going to try to distract you for a while saying, this get on with things. But it's not a waste of time. Be still and know that I am God and that there is none other. This personal view of God is necessary if we're going to fulfill God's plan have his perspective, have his power. Getting along with God, you know, and, and we, we sometimes boo-hoo people, and, and I understand, well, I, get, I, I don't go to church, I get alone with God in my fishing boat. I just, no. I'm not talking about that, but, but the heavens declare his glory. So go, go in a place where you can be alone and not distracted, but where you're surrounded by his glory. The Lord did this. He'd go into a high mountain and he'd pray. He's eleva elevated above all the distraction. He's alone. Nobody else is coming up there, but surrounded by God's glory, then he begins to reflect on, it, on the Father's glory. And, uh, and he's our example. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Then let a true view of God penetrate your heart based on what the scripture says. Daniel also responded to God as Isaiah did. If you go to Daniel 9 and verse 3, he saw the Lord. And if you go there, you'll notice that what he saw changed him. Daniel chapter 10 verses 5 and 6. And we can go to recent church history, which allows us to read about men like David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, the Wesleys. I was talking to somebody recently who got to visit John Wesley's home there in London. And he, he made a comment that struck me as well, because the two, the, we both remembered the same thing that moved us the most. And that was that right off of his bedroom in a dormer, John Wesley had a prayer room. And his kneeling bench is still in that prayer room. And you can look out that window onto London, and you know why the Wesleys, God used them to help change London? It's what happened in that prayer room looking out that window. Men like Moody, A.W. Tozer, who spent much time alone with God that they might look full in his wonderful face. Christians today try to experience him in intellectualism. So they like reading the latest book, the latest author. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes you're just chasing a Christian celebrity. Don't do that. And so, oh, I see something a little different, and I, I feel good about it. That's just intellectualism. That's not going to change it. Or emotionalism. Again, music. Uh, church services that are designed to, to work up emotions so that maybe now I'm motivated to do something for God. That's not God. 
Those are no substitutes for seeing him when you're on your knees with your open Bible. Now, our time is up. So I want to take uh, the coming weeks to just continue to look at that at, at this. We're going to be we're going to finish looking at the cleansing of God's man. Same thing works with you sisters in Christ. All right, the cleansing of God's man, and then in verses eight to thirteen, we're going to look at the new calling. It wasn't really a different calling, but it was a new calling for Isaiah because. Once God had his heart like he had never had his heart before, Isaiah approached the rest of his life with a determination and a vision and a zeal where you couldn't stop the man until God was done with the man. And I just believe that that's, that's what we need today. And this passage encourages me because... I don't know what's going to happen in the pol- with the politics in this land. But if things happen like they happened in Israel, there are seasons where it gets better, but we all do realize we're getting close to a rapture, right? Okay. Can God send revival? Sure he can. Is my America ever going to return to what it was? I can't answer that. But here, here's what I know, that if I am yielded to the Lord and He does His work in me like He was able to do in Isaiah's life, frankly, it doesn't matter and God's work will get done. And so let's, I, I would encourage you, study this passage on your own. We're going to come back to it. And... Uh, and, and let's just remember, each of us has a call on our lives. But that call needs to have a renewing that happens often as we spend much time with our Lord. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.